Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you've experienced something strange, if you've had an encounter with the paranormal, a cryptid like Bigfoot, a ghost, a UFO, or if you know of a story you think we should cover, you can contact us via email, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. So this is part two of our prowling ghost stories. If you didn't hear part one, you want to go back to last episode spring Jack and Prowling Ghosts Part 1, and you can start there. For a short recap, basically we're talking about this phenomenon in the 19th century of people dressing up as ghosts and scaring people. It started with an email we received talking about Lee Master, who we covered in a previous episode, and his penchant for dressing up as a ghost and scaring people, and apparently it's a thing. I thought it was just Scooby-Doo related. <laughs> Or it was a thing, I guess. I don't, I don't imagine too many people are doing this anymore. Well, we're just not going to see them right now. <laughs> and we talked about uh, mainly the several Hammersmith ghosts. The first sort of prowling ghosts, as they were called. They made a distinction between these prowling ghosts and the sort of previous ghosts. They called the prowling ghosts modern ghosts back in the 19th century. They're, of course, not modern to us, but they call them modern ghosts. These prowling ghosts, they, they would wander around and, and they showed up at different places. They weren't associated, as traditional ghosts were, with like one graveyard or one church or one house. And they were scaring people, and it seems for the most part to be people in costumes. But there's also some very strange things reported, like headless horses and white bears and different things like that that are frightening people, along with what seems to be supernatural powers associated with some of these things, you know, bulletproof and glowing eyes and breathing fire and so forth. So it's a very interesting set of stories. And we left off in the 1820s with the Hampshire ghost, I believe was the last one we covered. 
in the 1820s. So we're going to start with a ghost of a different sort that showed up in Winsford, England. Once again, we're going to apologize for our pronunciation of these <laughs> local places. We're probably pronouncing a lot of things wrong. We're doing our best. Sorry to any natives who are wincing at our Yankee pronunciations. This comes from the Morning Post of London from the 22nd of January, 1834. Commitment of a ghost to the treadmill. The neighborhood of Winsford, near Middlewich, has for the last three years been disturbed by an apparition of a rather strange character, which in that part of the country is termed by the country folks a boggart. This apparition appeared in the shape of a naked man, generally at dusk, on the roads adjacent to Winsford, sometimes three or four months intervening between the appearance of this much-dreaded boggart. At length the terror created by his appearance so much scared the female part of the community that they dared not venture out of doors after dusk. On Saturday night, the fourth instant between the hours of 11 and 12, a female servant at a beer house was washing the floor, all the family but herself being in bed. She heard a gentle tapping at the window. She lifted up her head, and to her terror and amazement, there beheld the much-dreaded Boggart standing before the window. The terrified girl uttered a scream and fell insensible on the floor. The noise awoke the master, who ran through the back door to the front of the house, where he came in contact with the apparition. But being in no way daunted by his ghost ship, he seized him, where he stated that he had merely come for a glass of ale. The individual who had been behaving in this disgusting and extraordinary manner turns out to be a member of the primitive Wesleyan Chapel of Winsford, named George Barlow. Of course, he was brought before the magistrate, who regretted that the law did not empower them to punish him further than by sending him to the treadmill for three months. He's now undergoing that punishment at the Newtsford House of Correction. So that's a ghost of a different sort. Can I ask about the, um, maybe you haven't looked this up, but sort of the etymological background of that word they keep using and how it sounds like something else? A boggart. Yeah. I mean, that's where boogeyman comes from. Oh, okay. Doesn't have any other... Is it a racist term? No, 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 no. I'm thinking like, like, it just sounds a little bit like bugger. (laughs) Oh, no, no. It comes from like, like a little goblin creature was a bugger. Ah, Okay. So this ghost obviously was just a guy trying to expose himself. I think we'd probably call that something different these days than a ghost. And there was another sort of rash of naked ghosts that appeared through the 19th century as well. Why did they even bother calling them ghosts at all? I think people were so shocked to see them, Um, for one thing, that they thought, like, this must be a ghost. (laughs) Uh, Some were caught, like George Barlow was. Many were not. Now, were any at all supernatural or was this just society's way of explaining perverts at the Mm -hmm. time in spirits of an industrial age that's the book that kicked off this research by middleton he does note there was some debate about naked ghosts amongst believers which i think is pretty interesting and something which we should cover so if ghosts are spirits if they're the spirits of people why do they appear clothed at all if that's the spirit of a dead person their clothes don't have any spirit. If you're an animist and you want to say clothes do have spirits, fine, but it's not the same spirit as the human then. They would be a separate spirit. Maybe so, that whole rationale, so you recognize them in the clothes that they wore at the time. And maybe you're just seeing, maybe their spirithood takes different forms depending on who's viewing it. Well, that would be interesting. And that's a way more strange familiar approach to it. Mm-hmm. Than just like I mean, somebody. Why, on, why do cherubs suddenly need robes? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there's probably a puritanical reason oh, for that yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. But I found that very interesting. This idea that, and they debated this at the time. They debated uh-huh. this, like, why do ghosts appear in clothes? They're not clothes. Aren't their spirit? If it was just a spirit, why wouldn't it just be the person's spirit, that person's naked body, or you know, some representative? Why would it be their body at all if it was their spirit? Well, that's another question too. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's a very interesting point. There was an idea, too, that maybe someone naked in the moonlight would appear very pale and and very ghostly, and then someone might assume they were a ghost in that sense. I think that's kind of pulling at straws, you know, trying to explain that. So there was another phenomenon in England, and we touched on this a little bit last time as well. 
and that was in 18th and 19th century, they had what they were calling monsters, human monsters. And these were basically males who assaulted women in various ways by shaking them, pinching, poking with sharp objects, verbally abusing them, tearing their clothes, etc. And these were termed monsters, obviously just men. But it showed how dangerous, and some of these stories continue that with these prowling ghosts, how dangerous it was just to be a woman walking alone, particularly at night in this time. Anytime. I guess, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't stop in like 1900. (laughs) Good point. In 1837, something strange began appearing in the London suburb of Greenwich. The Morning Chronicle of London reported on an entity named Steel Jack on December 28th. 1837. More Christmas ghosts. It is likewise currently reported that some scoundrel disguised in a bearskin and wearing spring shoes has been seen jumping to and fro before foot passengers in the neighborhood of Lewisham and has in one or two instances greatly alarmed females. This feat, it is said, is to decide a wager, he having undertaken to play off these freaks for a number of nights in nine different parishes without being apprehended. A sharp lookout, however, is being kept after him, and there's little doubt he will be the loser. He has been named Steel Jack by the inhabitants of Lewisham, many of whom are afraid to leave their houses after dark. In early January 1838, the West Kent Guardian had changed the entity's name to Spring Jack and stated it had been seen riding at midnight upon a milk-white steed covered in blood and dust. Where do you get one of those? I don't know. These were the first sightings of the group of entities, because it could not have been one person. Mm-hmm. The group of people or entities or beings that would become famously known as spring Jack. Can we talk a little bit about, in traditional music, which horse to take? Sure, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, you're talking about the milk-white steed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, between the milk-white steed and the dapple gray, which is the horse to take in all traditional songs? In all traditional songs, the faster horse is the milk-white steed. It's always faster than the dapple gray. Also, never date a guy named Willie. Yeah, I mean, that just makes sense. And you're going by traditional song rules. So these sightings start in, you know, 1837, 1838, and Springheel Jack sightings would continue on through the 20th century. So these men literally had springs in their steps. That was the assertion. They must have had springs in their boots to make these incredible jumps, you know. Oh, more tech more tech exactly they were not superstitious people of the 18th century these were science-minded 19th century people and they could explain these things oh there is an ape in the woods and he's wearing spring heels So by January 9th, 1838, the Morning Chronicle printed an article regarding a letter sent to the Lord Mayor of London. The Lord Mayor said that he had received a letter upon a subject, the odd nature of which had induced him to withhold it from the public for some days in the expectation that some statement might be made through a source of indisputable authority relative to the matter of which it was treated. The following is the letter. To the Right Honorable the Lord Mayor, My Lord, The writer presumes that your lordship will kindly overlook the liberty he has taken in addressing a few lines on a subject which, within the few last weeks, has caused much alarming sensation in the neighboring villages within three or four miles of London. It appears that some individuals, of us, the writer believes, the higher ranks of life, have laid a wager with the mischievous and foolhardy companion, name as yet unknown, that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London, in three different disguises of a ghost, a bear, and a devil, and moreover that he will not dare to enter gentlemen's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager, however, has been accepted, and an unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. At one house he rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, the worse-than-brute stood in a no less dreadful figure than a spectre, clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. But on seeing any man, screams out most violently, Take him away! There are two ladies, which your lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children, who are not expected to recover, but likely to become burdens upon their families. For fear that your lordship might imagine that the writer exaggerates, he will refrain from mentioning other cases, if anything more melancholy than those he has already related. 
The affair has now been going on for some time, and strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer is very unwilling to be unjust towards any man, but he has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but through interested motives are induced to remain silent. It is, however, high time that such detestable nuisance should be put a stop to, and the writer feels assured that your lordship, as the chief magistrate of London, will take great pleasure in exerting your power to bring the villain to justice. Hoping your lordship will pardon the liberty I have taken in writing, I remain your lordship's most humble servant, a resident of Peckham. The Lord Mayor, on reading the account, observed that as our friends on the other side of the Atlantic were in the habit of saying, it was extraordinary if true. In his opinion, it was not calculated for the meridian of London, but if any trick had been practiced by fools, he had no doubt that the vigilance of the police might be depended upon to prevent annoyance. It appeared to him that the letter, which was written in a very beautiful hand, was the production of a lady who might have been terrified by some bugaboo into this mode of obtaining retribution at the hands of the Lord Mayor. But as the terrible vision had not entered the city, he could not take cognizance of its iniquities. A gentleman stated to his lordship that the servant girls about Kensington and Hammersmith and Ealing told dreadful stories of the ghost or devil, who on one occasion was said to have beaten a blacksmith and torn his flesh with iron claws, and in others to tear clothes from the backs of females. Not one of the injured people have been known to tell the story. Perhaps they did not live to tell it. The Lord Mayor believed that one of the seven ladies who had lost their seven senses was his correspondent. He hoped she would do him the favor of a call, and he would have an opportunity of getting from her such description of the demon as would enable him to catch him, in spite of the paid press and police. So there's expressed the idea again that it's maybe a nobleman, but also that the newspapers know about it. They're covering up the story for some reason. So more reports and letters to the mayor followed. Descriptions of the ghost had it wearing claws, tearing people's clothes, and severely wounding some. It took the guise of a ghost, a bear, or a devil. A man wearing bear skin, which when drawn aside, revealed a suit of mail. So here we have armor once again. Another article predicted that this ghost, or monster, as it was termed, would kill six women. It makes pretty good copy, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. By January 13, 1838, the Yorkshire Herald was reporting on the ghost. Considerable alarm has been created in several villages near the metropolis by the sudden appearance in the evenings of some miscreant who either to indulge a mischievous propensity or, as other accounts state, to win a considerable wager, assumes a variety of awful shapes. Sometimes he has manifested himself in the form of a bear and then, by a sudden transformation, has stood before his affrighted victims in the full proportions of his satanic majesty. Again, he has appeared in a full suit of armor, sometimes of brass, others of steel, like the specter of some baron or knight of the olden time. Neither, if the reports be correct, has been content with showing his monstrous shapes to an frightened population. But he has inflicted personal injury by tearing the flesh of some who have fallen into his clutches, with huge claws which he wears upon his hands, and the clothes of some females have been literally torn from their backs. It is said that several females have actually been scared into fits from which they have not recovered, and that more than one has died from the shock. These perhaps are exaggerations, but they are seriously stated as facts. In letters received by the Lord Mayor of London, who is occupied with an investigation into the facts, some say the ghost travels in a cab, attended by a livery servant, and then he, when he arrives at a place suited for his supernatural manifestations, he throws off a cloak he wears to cover his hellish disguises, and thus presents himself before the solitary individual or the sauntering group he may have fixed upon as the victims of his unearthly sport. One report is, we trust, too horrible to be true indeed, without being criminally cognizant of that matter. We do not see how anyone could speak to the fact with certainty, and that is, that a condition in the wager is that he shall cause the death of a certain number of women in a given time. At any rate, this is certain that such a freak is playing off, and that places remote from each other have been visited by this wandering demon. The police are under orders to keep a strict lookout, and in noticing several communications which have been received on the subject, the Lord Mayor observed on Wednesday that he wished a more early communication had been made to him on the subject, but he had the satisfaction to know now that he would not have the assistance of a barrister and an attorney whose names and respectability he was acquainted with, and all he could say was that if the two lawyers could not make a fool of the devil himself between them, he did not know who the devil could. This term, freaks, which came first, calling the people freaks or calling these tricks 
that these ghosts were doing freaks i'm gonna say people <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's, it's sort of uh interchangeable in that case i think so there seemed to be a lot and also you're calling people monsters or monstrosities right so human curiosities i guess is, mm-hmm. the, is the case and again this is something that's taking different forms according to people you know it's, sometimes it's a bear sometimes it's a man in bear skin sometimes it's someone and, in armor and it's interesting how like just as they purport that he exists people start to see him in different places yes yeah exactly they all want in on it like just just fear perpetuate it just fear make it real Possibly, or is something else going on? Or are these other guys? Is it... Copycats? Yeah, this, yeah oh, this we, sounds we like a good idea. We always talk about like, copycat criminals. I wonder how often that's actually true. We'll be back to our ghost stories in a moment. Have you heard of pandemic puppies, Allison? <laughs> Is that when people are trapped inside and they accidentally have puppies? I don't know if they accidentally have them, but people you know, knew the sequester was coming, apparently, and said, now's a good time to get a puppy. But a lot of people get the puppy home, and they're like, well, now what? Yeah, now I have no one to help me because I'm all alone with the puppy. <laughs> That's when you need to turn to 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy and their relationship-based approach. It helps you and your puppy become perfect for each other. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy has online sources, video lessons, and a secret Facebook group where you can ask questions of both the 90 Days staff and other people that have joined the program. It's a great resource. So you're all working together to have a perfect puppy with other people who are going through the trials of puppydom. You might bring up something that you hadn't thought of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There are also one-on-one options available. Go to (laughs) sithappens.us. That's one of the best URLs. It it is. (laughs) Sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. They'll help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods for you and your puppy. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. That means by Labor Day, your puppy will be perfect. take this time to thank our patrons thank you so much your support means the world to us and we could not create strange familiars without your help so thank you very much if you like what we do if you like the content we make and you want to hear more you can become a patron at patreon it's patreon.com strange familiars for three dollars a month you can get full extra episodes of strange familiars we do at least one full episode every month often we do more there are other levels of support at Patreon as well for things like copies of my books, copies of my artwork, CDs, Strange Familiars t-shirts, and more. You can check all of that out at patreon.com strangefamiliars. If you want to help and you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription like Patreon, you can go to strangefamiliars.com. Look in the show notes under every episode. There will be a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation. Everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, by liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, whatever podcatcher you use, and by leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. On January 27th, 1838, the papers reported that the daughter of a man named Plutarch Dixon had been... a name. (laughs) Right? Plutarch Dixon had been badly frightened by a ghost that appeared enveloped in a sheet of blue fire. That would do it. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I don't know how someone could pull that off with tricks at the time. By February 1838, the name Spring Hill Jack becomes common in the papers. On February 22nd, the Standard printed the following article. Lambeth Street, the ghost again. Yesterday, Mr. Alsop, a gentleman of considerable property, residing at Bearbine Cottage near Bearbine Lane, a very lonely spot between the villages of Bow and Old Ford, accompanied by his three daughters, waited upon Mr. Hardwick and gave the following particulars of an outrage committed on one of them. Miss Jane Alsop, a young lady, 18 years of age, stated that at about a quarter to nine o'clock on the preceding night, she heard a violent ringing at the gate in front of the house, and on going to the door to see what was the matter, she saw a man standing outside, of whom she inquired what was the matter, 
and requested he would not ring so loud. The person instantly replied that he was a policeman and said, For God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Springheeled Jack here in the lane. She returned to the house and brought a candle and handed it to the person, who appeared enveloped in a large cloak, and whom she at first really believed to be a policeman. The instant she had done so, however, he threw off his outer garment, and applying the lighted candle to his breast, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flame from his mouth, and his eyes resembled red balls of fire. From the hasty glance which her fright enabled her to get at this person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, appeared to her to resemble white oilskin. Without uttering a sentence, he darted out, and catching her, partly by her dress and the back part of her neck, placed her hand under one of his and commenced tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by considerable exertion got away from him and ran towards the house to get in. Her assailant, however, followed her and caught her on the steps leading to the hall door, when he again used considerable violence, tore her neck and arms with his claws, as well as the quantity of hair from her head. But she was at length rescued from his grasp by one of her sisters. Miss Alsop added that she had suffered considerably all night from the shock she had sustained, and was then in extreme pain, both from the injury done to her arm and the wounds and scratches inflicted by the miscreant about her shoulders and neck by his claws or fangs. Miss Mary Alsop, a younger sister, said that on hearing the screams of her sister Jane, she went to the door and saw a figure, as above described, ill-using her sister. She was so alarmed at his appearance that she was afraid to approach or render any assistance. Mrs. Harrison said that hearing the screams of both her sisters, first of Jane and then of Mary, she ran to the door and found the person before described in the act of dragging her sister Jane down the stone steps from the door with considerable violence. She, Mrs. Harrison, got hold of her sister by some means or another, which she could scarcely describe, succeeded in getting her inside the door and closing it. At this time, her sister's dress was nearly torn off her. Both her combs dragged out of her head, as well as a quantity of her hair torn away. The fellow, notwithstanding the outrage he had committed, knocked two or three times at the door, and it was only when they're loudly calling for the police from the upper windows that he left the place. Mr. Alsop, who appeared very feeble, said that he and Mrs. Alsop, who had been laid up for several weeks past with rheumatic affliction, so as to be scarcely able to get out of bed, but such was the alarm on the night before that they both got out of bed. I'm picturing um, the grandparents <laughs> from, <laughs> from uh, Willy Char Wonka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he managed to get downstairs and found his daughter with her clothes torn and having the appearance of having received the most serious personal violence. Mr. Alsop also said it was perfectly clear that there was more than one ruffian connected with the outrage, as the fellow who committed the violence did not return for his cloak, but scampered across the fields, so that there must have been some person with him to pick it up. In conclusion, Mr. Alsop said that he would most willingly give a reward of ten guineas for the apprehension of the miscreant. Mr. Hardwick expressed his surprise at the outrage, and said that no pain should be spared to bring the miscreant perpetrator to justice. So um, how close are we to the writing of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Or like Phantom of the Opera kind of thing, because this is sort of like the uh, the monstrous figure is shrouded by a cape who reveals himself to be a monster at some times, and this idea that he must be two people. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And, and of course, the, the nobleman kind of fits mm -hmm. in with that idea as well. So while there had been reports of assaults by spring -Hill Jack previously, this kind of turns it up a notch because this is the first time we have a real name and an address associated with it. In the past, it was always some young woman was scared mm -hmm. to death. Some young woman fainted because she saw this. Now we have an actual name, an actual family, and multiple witnesses. So this really does kind of turn things up a notch. People begin to take it a lot more seriously. And it's the subtlety of being so scared that they'll never recover has now changed to the more obvious like this girl has been assaulted she's it's been assaulted she's been injured it's a verifiable named victim you know this is somebody that was verified by the papers so a few nights later jack spring -Heel jack came to the door of a house this is from the standard february 26 1838 don't you just want to yell, don't open the door? <laughs> <laughs> One of the spring Jack gang visited last night the house of Mr. Ashworth. 
to Turner Street, Commercial Road. About eight o'clock, a person called and inquired for Mr. Ashworth, but before the boy who opened the door could give an answer, Jack had thrown off his cloak and presented a most hideous appearance. The screams of the poor lad having alarmed the family, the villain, unable to accomplish any further mischief, succeeded in effecting his escape. By early March, papers all over England had picked up the stories of Spring-Heeled Jack, so this is becoming a sensation throughout the country at this point. In early March 1838, two men were accused of the attack on Jane Alsop. Two persons named Payne and Milbank have undergone lengthened examinations during the past week at the Lambeth Street office on suspicion of being the miscreants who committed the disgraceful outrage on Miss Alsop at Old Ford related in our paper last week. The evidence did not suffice, however, to affix more than a strong suspicion, and the case was held over for further inquiry. So I'm guessing they're pretty desperate to find this guy or these people. And so they found two people that could possibly be him. Yeah, so multiple witnesses placed both Milbank and Payne in the area the night of the attack. And one witness claimed Milbank even said to him, What have you to say to Spring Jack when he met him in the alleys? This sounds very fanciful. Like this idea that he would be gloating about it and telling other people that he's spring Jack and that there's actually two people working together. I mean, isn't this like a common thing that happens early on in cases of either very clever or outrageous uh, serial killers? They're like, oh, there must be more than one person working together. And it Well, even it... in that initial article about Jane Alsop, they said they thought there must have been two people. Yeah, there. Do you think he really just had like some toady that went along to pick up his cloak afterwards? Is that why they think that it must be some rich person who would have someone, I like mean, a that's... cloak picker-upper? <laughs> <laughs> How do you convince someone, I'm going to go along and assault some people. You're going to be there to pick up my clothes. <laughs> Come along with me. It'll be fun. <laughs> so the evidence against Milbank and Payne did not hold up because there was another witness who claimed to see the spring Jack who attacked Jane Alsop and said it wasn't Milbank, but someone much younger, taller, and thinner. Milbank and Payne both denied any involvement in the crime. Milbank himself claimed he was blackout drunk and had no memory of the night. Was that back when that was still an acceptable form of an acceptable, alibi? <laughs> acceptable alibi at the time. We know you, Milbank. That's probably true. In the end, neither Milbank nor Payne were charged with the crime. They did not have enough evidence to charge them with anything. But they got a good look. The girls got a good look at this guy, right? Well, they, he was wearing a helmet, supposedly. Oh, yeah. And in mm. the cape. <laughs> On March 7th, 1838, London's Morning Post printed this report of another encounter. Lambeth Street, the ghost alias spring Jack again. Yesterday, Mr. Scales, a respectable butcher residing in Narrow Street, Limehouse, accompanied by his sister, a young woman 18 years of age, attended before Mr. Hardwick and made the following statement relative to the further gambles of spring Jack. Miss Scales stated that on the evening of Wednesday last, at about half-past eight o'clock, as she and her sister were returning from the house of their brother, and while passing along Green Dragon Alley, they observed some person standing at an angle in the passage. She was in advance of her sister at the time, and just as she came up to the person, who was enveloped in a large cloak, he spurted a quantity of blue flame right in her face, which deprived her of her sight, and so alarmed her that she instantly dropped to the ground and was seized with violent fits which continued for several hours. In reply to the question of Mr. Hardwick, Miss Gale said that on approaching the individual, she thought it was a woman from the headdress being apparently a bonnet or something of that description, but she was afterwards satisfied that it was a man. He appeared to her to be tall and thin, but her sister, who was with her, could give a more accurate description of this person, as she had a better opportunity of noticing him. But she was not at home when the officer called, else she would have attended. Mr. Scales said that on the evening in question, in a few minutes after his sisters had left his house, he heard the loud screams of one of them, and on running up Green Dragon Alley, he found his sister Lucy, who had just given her statement on the ground in a strong fit, and his other sister endeavoring to hold and support her. She was removed home, and he then learned from his other sister what had happened. She described the person to be of tall, thin, and gentlemanly appearance, enveloped in a large cloak, and carried in front of his person a small lamp, or bullseye, similar to those in the possession of police. When her sister, who was a little before her, coming up to the person, he threw open his cloak, exhibited the lamp, and puffed a quantity of flame from his mouth into the face of her sister, 
who instantly dropped, and much was the effect of the light upon her eyes that she had to cover them with her hands for an instant or two when she went to the assistance of her sister. She also stated that the individual did not utter a word, nor did he attempt to lay hands on them, but walked away in an instant. Mr. Scales remarked that it was not a little singular that one of his sisters had been reading in a newspaper a few minutes before they left the house the account under the head of this office of Springheel Jack. When he remarked it was not likely that this personage would come to his neighborhood from the fact of there being many butchers residing in it, and the account so far from alarming his sister appeared to have a different effect. Mr. Scales then handed in a certificate of which following was the copy. This is to certify that on Wednesday, the 28th, I visited Lucy Scales of Weeks Place, Limehouse, who was suffering from hysterics and great agitation, in all probability the result of fright. Charles Pritchell, surgeon. A respectable female, who said she was attracted to the spot by the shrieks of Miss Scales, corroborated her statement as to her being on the ground in a strong fit. Lee, the officer, observed that no place could have been better adapted for such an act as the spot selected, as persons could be seen at a considerable distance approaching it on both sides. Lee had seen some experiments tried in the London hospital on that morning and was satisfied that the light, like those described, could be produced by blowing through a tube in which spirits of wine, sulfur, and another ingredient were deposited and ignited. Mr. Hardwick remarked that the description given by the parties of the individual favored the opinion that those disgraceful outrages were committed by the same individual and not by several. So again, we have this tech that he's using to breathe fire. On March 13th, the Morning Post carried this story of a boy being frightened by two prowling ghosts. This is subtitled Springheeled Jack Mania. The notoriety which the extraordinary and highly reprehensible exploits of the personage named Springheel Jack have acquired seems to have animated some persons at the West End with a desire to frighten out of their wits some of Her Majesty's lieges in their quarter. At five o'clock on Saturday morning, a youth about 13 years of age in the employ of Mr. Priest, Great Marleybone Street, was engaged in Westmoreland Mews in attaching his master's horse to the cart for the purpose of proceeding to market when, on turning suddenly round, beheld two very tall men enveloped in cloaks standing before him. Their arms were raised and stretched out to the fullest extent, and their faces smeared with red ochre or brick dust. The poor boy, who fancied that his visitors were no other than members of the Springhill Jack family, was so much alarmed that, after screaming loudly for assistance, he sank to the ground, and a few minutes afterwards was picked up in a state of insensibility and removed home, where for some time after the occurrence he was confined to bed. He has not yet completely recovered, and the dastardly fellows fled prior to the arrival of those who were attracted by the boy's cries to the spot. So it's spreading. Now it's Springheel Jack mania. The Morning Post again reported on March 20th that Springheel Jack had been captured. Yesterday, Daniel Granville, a simple-looking fellow with a most bewitching obliquity of vision, was charged as follows. It appeared from the evidence of Police Constable Mark Markham... S24, that on Saturday night he was on duty at Kentish Town when he saw a number of women and children running in every direction, screaming out, Here's Springheel Jack. He drew his staff and, screwing his courage to the sticking place, waited for the monster, whom several of the frightened women who had gathered round him pointed out as the prisoner. Perceiving that a sort of blue froth was at his mouth and that his features were not altogether usual, he went up to him and seizing him by the collar, dragged him to a butcher shop by the light of which he discovered that he wore a mask embellished at the mouth with blue glazed paper. To put a stop to his capers, and as he had almost frightened one or two into fits, he thought a fit place for him was the station house, and accordingly having conveyed him thither, he was locked up. The prisoner who said he did not mean to frighten anybody was discharged with a caution, and the cause of alarm ordered to be burnt. They let him go. They let him go, but they burn his mask. <laughs> Well, that'll solve it. <laughs> so not only is everyone scared, every police officer wants to be the one to catch Springheel Jack. And then, as is usual, there's even perhaps the assumption that Springheel Jack might be a police officer himself because there's that illusion in the in the Dragon Alley that the light that he's holding is specific to a police officer. Right, the bullseye lamps that they carry. I like the idea that they thought at first it was a woman. Like, I, I, maybe I'll put up some pictures of the early daguerreotypes which would be like just a few years after this and show you what dramatic headgear women were wearing at oh, that yeah. time so, so it was, it quite, was large right a, quite a dramatic bonnet sometimes with all manner of um i mean it's very oversized mm -hmm. which sometimes was attached to a cloak so it would be very easy to think that that was a woman if you were especially if you're in a cloak like that big enough to maybe hide a helmet 
Yeah, because these bonnets were like hugely oversized mm-hmm. and um, had layers of things kind of in amongst the hair before you even got to the bonnet. So. Interesting. That's very interesting. So they call it spring Jack, but of course they didn't catch spring Jack. I bet he shows up again, right? <laughs> of course. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. By April 4th, 1838, another spring Jack had been caught, again reported by the Morning Post. Capture of spring Jack. Yesterday, James Painter, a youth about 18 years of age and footman to Mrs. Chater of Kilbourne, was charged at Marleybone Police Office before Mr. Rawlinson and Lord Montford with having for some time past kept the fair inhabitants of the above village in considerable alarm by sallying out upon them during their evening perambulations disguised as a ghost. Mrs. Anne Amstink, a most respectable married lady living in the place above named, stated that a little before eight o'clock on Saturday evening, she was walking along Waterloo Place, contiguous to Mrs. Chater's residence, accompanied by a female friend who was present, when all of a sudden she found herself seized by a most ghostly-looking figure, habited in a white sheet, wearing a hideous mask, from which depended a long beard. The figure, on clasping her, exclaimed, "'Who the devil are you?' And her friend, having recognized the voice of the ghost, replied very promptly, We'll let you know who we are, and that we are not to be frightened by you. The ghost then beat a retreat, followed by complainant and her friend, and seeing it vanish over a wall surrounding Mrs. Chater's premises, she was pretty well convinced that the defendant was the ghost. However, to make sure of the matter, they asked a water carrier named Snell, who had a good view of the ghost, and who assured them it was the defendant. Miss Charlotte Hagerstone, the companion of the complainant, after corroborating her statement, said that she knew the defendant well. He had, for a considerable period, been playing his mischievous tricks upon females, some of whom he had frightened in a very serious manner. She recognized his voice the moment he spoke, and he had attempted upon several previous occasions to frighten her. Samuel Snell, the water carrier alluded to, gave corroborative evidence. The defendant denied the offense and called Charles Laxtog, Mr. Chater's coachman, for the purpose of proving an alibi, to which he failed. He then proceeded to state that Mrs. Amsing had been to his mistress's house in a great passion and seizing him in the hall had bestowed summary punishment in the shape of sundry hard smacks on the face. Mrs. Amsmick said it was true she had called to Mrs. Chater's house to remonstrate respecting the defendant's conduct when the defendant behaved in the most insolent manner, said he would serve her out and actually called the dog to set on her. Finding that she was not likely to obtain redress at the house, she determined upon seeking it at this office and accordingly obtained a warrant against the defendant. 
She denied striking him. Mr. Rawlinson, to the defendant, This is a very ag aggravated assault, made worse by the defense set up, and I have not the least doubt of your being the real offender. If fellows like you think they can frighten respectable ladies with impunity by imitating the scandalous pranks of Spring-Heeled Jack, they'll be convinced of their mistake by finding themselves within the walls of Newgate. It is a very serious offense, and might, under particular circumstances, have caused death or other lamentable circumstances, and the public, especially the female portion of it, are much indebted to Mrs. Amsick for the spirit and courage she has displayed in bringing such an offender to justice. For this offense, you are fined four pounds, and it is to be hoped that you will learn better for the time to come. The money was paid, and the defendant liberated. But it seems no matter how many Spring-Heeled Jacks they caught, there was always another one. So this is from the Times of London, April 14th, 1838. Spring-Heeled Jack has, as it seems, found his way to the Sussex coast. On Friday evening, between 9 and 10 o'clock, he appeared, as we are informed, to a gardener near Rose Hill in the shape of a bear or some other four-footed animal, and having first attracted attention by a growl, then mounted the garden wall, covered as it was with broken glass, and ran along it upon all fours to the great terror and consternation of the gardener, who began to think it time to escape. He was accordingly about to leave the garden when Springhill Jack leaped from the wall and chased him for some time. The dog was called, but slunk away, apparently as much terrified as his master. Having amused himself for some time with the trembling gardener, Springhill Jack scaled the wall and made his exit. The fellow may probably amuse himself in this way once too often. So I like the idea that somebody who's just sort of chasing after someone or playing a prank is the same person that's actually sexually assaulting women. They're all the same person. <laughs> well, and he's any, made his way to the coast now. It he's, seems like any kind of weird thing that's frightening people is now a Spring-Heeled Jack. And that's and in Sussex. A, so that's, There's not the assumption that this is just one person who really gets around, is it? I think by this point, no. Mm, I, I yeah. think initially that was the idea. And this point, I, you often hear it referred to as the Spring-Heeled Jack gang. So, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know if they mean that literally or if it's an idea of that there's multiple Spring-Heeled Jacks or multiple things that are fitting that description. But that's Sussex, and that's about 35 miles from London. So this In is, 1838, which makes a big difference. In 1838, right. But the idea is this is spreading. Mm -hmm. This is spreading throughout the country, this Spring-Heeled Jack phenomenon. By May of 1838, the Spring-Heeled Jack phenomenon made its way from London all the way to the north of England. The Leeds Mercury reported another disturbing attack on May 19th. Spring-Heeled Jack is playing his pranks at Whitby. One female has been grossly insulted by him in the shape of a bear. Her clothes were torn from her back and her face much injured and disfigured by the scratches from his claws firmly fixed in his hands. The woman was almost frightened out of her senses. Let the police in Yorkshire look after this mischievous vagabond and accomplish that which the London police officers weren't able to do, cage him. Whitby, by the way, is where most of the jet made for mourning jewelry came from. Oh, really? <laughs> Victorian facts. Yeah. <laughs> I only know these places from either bands or Victorian lore. So Spring-Heeled Jack returns to the south to accost a young man a week later. This is from the Morning Post, May 26, 1838. Spring-Heeled Jack. No little sensation has within the last few weeks been created among the inhabitants of the peaceful village of Carshalton, Surrey, by the mischievous pranks of some individual who has been personating the character of Spring-Heeled Jack. We regret, however, to add that in one instance his conduct has been attended with melancholy consequences, for a few days since, a youth of the name of Thomas Worth, about 14 years of age, the son of a poor, hard-working widow woman living in the village, while going to his work about six o'clock in the morning, was pursued unperceived by the scoundrel in some awful disguise, who suddenly jumped upon his back, which so alarmed the unfortunate youth that he instantly became bereft of reason, in which state he still continues. He is totally unable to give any description of the fellow, who will therefore escape the punishment he so richly merits." So at this point, Spring-Heeled Jack is just a well-known term that they're applying to miscreants and ne'er-do-wells mm -hmm. and all sorts of criminals and attacks like the, the previous one where it's just someone jumped on his back. I mean, mm -hmm. was that a mugger or was that someone dressed as a ghost? You know, did something else happen that we're not aware of that they didn't want to print in the paper? So the name was now so famous. By 1838 already, it's so famous. I'm just reading over your shoulder at the article. <laughs> right. 
He's now entered into popular culture. Right. Well, he's being used for advertising. <laughs> so this is from the Brighton Patriot and South of England Free Press. We're getting into a time where the newspaper titles become like as long as your arm. Uh-huh. There were some pretty interesting uh, newspaper titles. So this is from the Brighton Patriot and South of England Free Press, May 29th, 1838. Springhill Jack defeated... This miscreant's pranks in the lonely vicinities of the metropolis have created a visible panic, more especially among the fair and unprotected part of the creation. His recent attack on a beautiful young female whose arms and bosom he tore with his iron claws is fresh in the memory of everyone. But little reason will he have to triumph henceforth since by the application of Holloway's universal family ointment. The severest wound is speedily healed, and of course the monstrous cruelty of even a Springhill Jack defeated. Mr. Holloway's residence at the number 13 Broad Street Buildings, where may be seen testimonials to the efficacy of this unique ointment by Mr. Herbert Mayo, Dr. Binns, and Sir B. Brody. In cancer, scrofula? I don't know what, what old-timey yeah. disease that is. <laughs> Gout, rheumatism, glandular complaints, all skin diseases, wounds, all old and new, paralysis... And its effect is truly astonishing. So here we have the cure for... For Springhill Jack, basically. Yes. And gout. (laughs) I thought that was awesome, though, how it's like this ad comes up. They're already using Springhill Jack as uh, advertising. In early June, the Bristol Mercury and Daily Post noted that Springhill Jack was appearing all over England. Better get your ointment. This is from the 2nd of June, 1838. Springhill Jack, having left London and its neighborhood, is now visiting the more distant parts of the country. This mischievous personage seems endowed with ubiquity, for according to the country papers, he was last week at the same time in most of the boroughs, villages, and cities in England. <laughs> I feel like they're cresting towards the top of Springhill Jack mania, and now they're like, this is the inevitable, like the capitalization and the, the chiding of people for having seen him. He's on the downswing now. He's on the downswing? Yep. They're flattening the curve. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's part two. I think that's where we're going to leave it. We're going to pick up with more Spring Hill Jack sightings. Do we time. have any COVID-19 strange familiars ointment that we could be selling right now? Or in lieu of that, perhaps a picture of the week? <laughs> Indeed. Photo of the week. So for photo of the week, we have what could have been a spring Jack gang, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Except for these guys, I believe, are German. Yes. So this is a real photo postcard from roughly... Um, I'd say maybe the teens. No, it is not a spring Jack gang. It is a gang of clowns. Yeah, I think it's, it's his original clown. Posse? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think these are their names. Oh, okay. Yes. This is a real photo postcard, a group of four clowns who are smartly dressed. Yeah, there's not just your typical clown paraphernalia, the ones wearing a top hat, but they don't look particularly like the kind you would invite to a child's birthday. No. They look a little bit more sinister. (laughs) Yes, yes. One of many sinister clown photos that we have. So if you're interested in those... Yeah, this is just a little taste. Yeah, this is the the tip of the iceberg. We can bring many, many more of those to the table. But they are um, costumed, and there is a gang of them working together. Yes. Hopefully to provide merriment and not assault. (laughs) (laughs) Or fear. Or fear. So a group of clowns postcard. If you go to the show notes at strangefamiliars.com under this episode, you'll see a picture of it. You can click on that. That'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase it. And we're doing $35 mm-hmm. on this. Buying photos of the week helps the show and gives you a cool new hobby of photo collecting to start. So thanks to everybody who has purchased previous photos of the week. There are still some left. You can click on the photo of the week section there in our Etsy shop and you can see what we have available And you can get this week's photo as well. I continue to put original artwork for my books up in the Etsy shop as well. If you're interested in my original artwork, you can get the original illustration and the book in which it appeared, both signed by me. I'll put some more of those up, and I will be making more of those paranormal artifacts soon as well. You mean Strange Familiar's ointment. (laughs) What is your favorite old-timey disease? Ooh. Hmm. What's the one... You can't take Qatar. That's my favorite. I was going to say that. <laughs> no. I was going to say that. 
<laughs> All right. I'm, I guess piles it is. <laughs> that's no one's favorite. That's no one's favorite. No one's, that's no one's favorite. What is Qatar, by the way? That's We call that something else now, right? Yeah, I always forget what it is. I have to look it yeah. up again. But that was one... Many ointments for that. Yeah, many you saw, you saw that a lot. There were different ointments. I like that's the part about how they had such bad rheumatism that they just couldn't get out of bed except for that night. They could get out of right. bed like Charlie's grandparents. Yeah, I'd get such a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory vibe from that. It's, they're just in there, like, there's horrible screams downstairs. They're like, yeah, what oh, do you think, I, honey? I, oh, I mustn't. <laughs> oh, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> All right, before we go. I want to thank Stephen C. for his PayPal donation. Thank you very much. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can also join the Strange Familiars Gathering group. And we're on Instagram at Strange Familiars. Sold at gyms. 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.